places trade Stretched on across your body crushed By human hands you formed from dust Oh, how wonderful your mercy is How awesome are your ways I come, I come to worship you for all you've done. Oh, cleanser of the mess I've made, your boundless love for me portrayed with patience for my learning curve by holding back what I deserve oh how wonderful your mercy is how awesome are your
prisoners' chains with bleeding stripes. Paul and Silas prayed that night.
thank you, everyone. And beautiful song. And well done. If you'd open your Bible to the book of Mark this morning, and while you're turning there, I usually just jump right into the preaching. I don't like to stand up here and uh, talk about other things, but there's a couple things I do want to uh, speak to you about. There are the references on the screen, Mark chapter 1. First of all, I want to thank you for your faithfulness. I looked, as, as they were singing, I was looking over the audience here. You know, it's a great attendance for a, it's, it's just a terrible day again. And we've just had a run of bad weather, extremely cold, extremely something raining today. It's just been a, a very difficult time for us uh, on weather. We've tried to get our hospitality ministry up and going and out there in the tent. And these people, <laughs> they're out there and it's pouring the rain. And, and it's just uh, been a little difficult. But thank you for being faithful. You know, the first thing that the Lord requires of Christians is faithfulness. It's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And uh, we live in a time when people view church attendance as discretionary. If I don't have anything better to do, I'll go to church. And there was a day when especially Baptist people, boy, we said, we'll be in church and we'll schedule the rest of our life around that. And uh, I commend you for being here today. It's a little more effort, and you have to get a little bit chilled and cold out there. It probably doesn't hurt us. If uh, we run out of food, I promise you we'll go to the grocery store. And we need, our, we need our souls fed just as much as we do our bodies, don't we? And you know, over in the Middle East today, Christians are dying. Did you read this week? 100 or 200 more Christians captured just because they're Christians. And what they're going through is unbelievable. And I, don't even, I can't even compare coming to church in the rain with what those poor people are suffering. It's not even comparable. On the other hand, you know, to me, it's a little bit of a test. Who do I love and who am I going to put first? And am I thinking about my comfort or am I thinking about the Lord? Somebody said to me earlier today, it wasn't very convenient for Jesus to go to the cross either. And we always have to keep that in mind. That's our motivation. I thank you for, for your presence. Let's stand out of reverence to God's Word, and I'll read Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel's good news, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, notice it calls Him the Son of God. In verse 4, and John the Baptist did baptize in the wilderness, and he preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then we come down to verse number 14. The subject changes again. It's about our Lord. Now, after John was put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And here is my text. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent ye ye and believe the gospel. And thank you, and you may be seated. My subject today is the message of repentance. The message of repentance. I'll bet it's been a long time, maybe scores of years, that you could look back and in many cases 
say, you know, it's been a long time since I heard a message on repentance. I preach on repentance here, but it has become almost a forgotten subject, a forgotten doctrine. And this morning, I want to speak to you about that very important, no, not important, essential, critical message, the message of repentance. I hope you will listen carefully and uh, maybe take some notes and learn a little bit about this subject. Now, look up here. I don't want you to miss this. If I told you, folks, today I want to speak to you about the dangers of Ebola. And I want to tell you, you've got to get your Ebola shot. And you've got to get it now. Don't put it off. If you put it off, the worst possible things might happen in your life. It's critical that you get your Ebola shot. In fact, after the service here, when I give the invitation, we're going to have a nurse over here, and she's ready to go. She's got gallons of Ebola vaccine. Everybody just line up over here, take your coat off, roll up your sleeve, and you can get your Ebola shot this morning at the end of the service. Now, if I said that, come on forward. The nurse is ready. She's prepared. I have a feeling there would be very few people respond. I doubt that there would be a rush down here because you feel no need to get an Ebola shot. As far as I know, there's not a case of Ebola right now in the United States. You don't feel any threat. You don't feel any peril. You don't feel any danger at all. Why would I want to get an Ebola shot when I'm not going to need an Ebola shot. But if I were preaching in West Africa this morning, in Guinea or Liberia or in Sierra Leone, and I said, there's a nurse over here, and at the end of the service, come on down, roll up your sleeve, and she's going to give you free of charge an Ebola, shot, an Ebola uh, vaccination, inoculation. Do you know what? There might be a panic. There might be an all-out rush. It could end up in a mob scene because over there, they've buried over 5,000 people so far this year in those little tiny countries, which are not very large at all. They've buried over 5,000 people who have died because of Ebola. And there they feel the need for an Ebola shot. An Ebola shot could probably be probably be sold for hundreds and hundreds or maybe thousands of dollars there because there's a shortage. And every Sunday now, I stand here and I preach the gospel. I preach it in a different form, a different approach, but I preach to you the good news of the gospel of Christ. And hundreds of you go out across this city and across the country, depending on your travel plans, and you witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You give out tracts. You talk to people wherever you go, and you attempt to share with them the gospel of Christ. And you know what? You and I both are concerned because we would like to see a far greater response than we see. In America, 
to witness and share the gospel today, sometimes it feels like offering people an Ebola shot when they don't see the need of it. That kind of clicked in my mind last week when Junior Hill was here as our guest. And Junior and I were talking about what is happening in the churches across the country. And I won't give you a rundown on that, except that he made one statement to me. He said, it's, hard to get, it's harder than it used to be to get people to come to church. And when you get them, they don't see any need for it. They don't see the need of the gospel. And I thought about this, that this week, and I thought, why is that true that people don't feel this peril as unsaved people particularly? Well, I think there's a number of reasons I could use to explain it in, in, in a human sense. I think that we are now firmly in the postmodern era. And postmodernism teaches that there are no moral absolutes, so that's knocked the edge off of a sense of sin and conviction and contrition that people have. When basically our whole culture taught people that things are right and things are wrong, things are black and things are white, things are good and things are evil, and there was a clear moral distinction between right and wrong, people felt a need for the Lord Jesus Christ and for salvation. But we live in a time when in the educational world, the academic world, the world of entertainment and media, that no longer is believed. And if you are a product of uh, the public education system, to a great degree, you have been taught that there are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. In fact, a well-known preacher in our area recently has declared to the world that the Ten Commandments are not even commandments, that they're promises and basically suggestions for people. And so with that kind of atmosphere, the edge is knocked off. There's a dullness having to do with the sinfulness of sin. And not only that, but there's this teaching of tolerance today where we must approve of everybody's lifestyle. We must approve of everybody's religion. We must approve of everybody's conduct. Multiculturalism tells us that one viewpoint, one worldview, uh, one religion, one belief system is no better than any other belief system, and it's affected us. And so people don't see the lines clearly drawn as to sin. And if we don't see the problem with sin, we don't see the need of salvation. We've had 100 years of teaching of evolution in our school systems. We have today the media entertainment that has so desensitized us just watching television and, and, and hearing the conversation of people around us. More and more, you hear the filthy words used. You hear the profanity used. You see the lack of respect for uh, morality in, in any form. And then, to a great degree, we in the church and in the pulpits, we bear some responsibility because today people don't want to hear what we call, used to call hard preaching. They want their ears tickled, as it says over in Second Timothy chapter 3. They have itching ears. They want feel-good preaching, if you will. And so th that has knocked the edge off of people feeling their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a passage 
that I think really kind of describes our day. And I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Jude, the book of Jude, the little book right before Revelation. And in Jude, it only has one chapter, so chapter 1 and verse 4, if we don't see a clear, I mean a crystal clear description of our age in Jude 1 and 4, for there are certain men crept in, meaning into the flock, into Christianity, into the churches. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, and they're ungodly men. And here's the characteristic of our day, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Think about that phrase. Turn, these people have crept into the Christian faith, and they are turning the grace of God. Grace, God's unmerited favor that we get, we do not deserve, and God loves us in spite of ourselves. And they've turned that doctrine into lasciviousness. Now, lasciviousness, has anybody here used the word lascivious this week? I didn't think anybody would raise their hand. I haven't either. It's not a word we use every day, so we probably don't know the exact definition of lasciviousness. So right there in the margin of your Bible somewhere, what lasciviousness is, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Do you know what the root word of lasciviousness is from the Latin, and it means loose. It has to do with loose moral standards. It's really an umbrella word, and the word has the idea of uh, lawlessness, that do anything you want to do without anybody having the authority to tell you. It's, it's a, a word of rebellion, and it's an umbrella word meaning any type of sin, whether it be sins of word, sins of thought, sins of deed. And I believe today that people don't feel their need for salvation, your friends, your family members, and so on, because this whole culture is a culture of lasciviousness, lawlessness. I'll do what I want to do. I don't have to do what God tells me to do. I don't have to do what the Scripture says. A, a culture of moral looseness, and we're affected by it because we live in it. I'm affected by it. You're affected by it. If we're not very intentional, we will be pulled down by it just like gravity pulls an object to the ground. And why am I giving you this background? Because until we understand the doctrine of repentance, then we're going to be pulled down by these forces around us, and there are many of these forces. Number one, if you're taking notes with me then, so repentance is the message of the entire Bible. And when I begin reading my Bible, I go to the Old Testament, and every one of the prophets there I see them preach repentance. I see Isaiah preaching repentance, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jonah, Nahum, Micah. I go through the Old Testament. Almost every single prophet preached repentance. It was the heart of his message. Jonah went to Nineveh, a wicked, wicked city, the largest city of his day in the whole world. And what was his message? His message was repent, 
turn from your sins and turn to the living God. And you know the rest of the story. There was the greatest revival in ancient history in Nineveh as one by one from the king right down to the smallest child repented and changed their mind and their attitude toward the Lord. And I come to the New Testament. I read to you the message, the text verse today is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was his message? Mark 1.15. And note it in your Bible and don't ever forget it. What did Jesus preach? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. So what does repent mean? I've told you before, but I want to make sure everybody's got it in this church family. To repent simply means to change one's mind, to change your mind and your purpose, to turn from your own way and turn to the way of God, to turn from your own will to the will of God. Here's repentance. I'm marching in this direction, and as I go in this direction, I repent. I change my mind about the direction that I'm going. And so repentance is a U-turn, a U-turn on the highway of life. I'm going down the road of life, and I'm going away from God, away from the Bible, away from God's plan. And God speaks to me and puts me under conviction about the way I'm going. And then I turn, and I go to the Lord. A change of mind and a change of attitude. A will, by the way, it is a willful, conscious, and intentional choice that I make to turn from my sins and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I truly change my mind, though, it's going to be reflected in my actions. It will show up. Now, there's a parable that our Lord gave, and I'd like for you to turn with me over to the book of Matthew, if you will, in your Bible. And it has two of the most profound teachings on repentance of anything, uh, any, any other uh, or any comparable scripture in the Bible. Matthew chapter number 21, and, and I want to read this little short parable, three or four or five verses here, and just begin reading with me in verse 28. And Jesus said, what do you think? We often use that kind of question, don't we? Well, Jesus said, what do you think? A certain man had two sons. And he went to the first son, and he said, son, go work today in my vineyard. So this man obviously was a farmer. The son answered and said, I will not. I'm not going to go. But afterward, he repented. Now, just put in there, he changed his mind. He changed his mind, and he changed his course, his direction in life. And he went. He said at first, I'm not going to go work in your vineyard, Dad. But then he changed his mind. He said, I will. He came to the second son and said, likewise. And the second son answered him and said, I will go, sir. But he didn't go. Now, which of the two of them did the will of the father? The one who said, I won't go but went, or the one who said, I'm going to go and never did follow through? They said unto him, well, the first Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. But you, and he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious crowd there that day, he said, 
When you saw it, when you saw John and heard his message, you repented not afterward that you might believe him. Now, mark that last phrase in verse 32. You repented not afterward like that son did. He said no, but he repented. And after he had heard the message, he went and obeyed the Father. Jesus said to these people, you didn't do that, that you might believe. And I want you to see two things. In verse number 29, he repented and he went. So he just changed his mind. He had told the Father, no, I'm not going to go. And then he changed his mind. That's repentance. Verse number 29. Now, in verse number 32, but here is a powerful thought. I believe the Bible teaches you can't really believe in Jesus Christ until you've repented. Look at that verse again. Without repentance, true faith is impossible. He believed afterward. I mean, he repented afterward that he might believe. And the inference there, logically and scripturally, studying the words is, if you haven't repented, you haven't truly believed in a saving sense. And that may really be the problem today in America. Now, look up here. Let me tell you something from the logic that I've just taught you. Is it possible to believe and not even be saved? Answer, yes, And what we have in America today is multitudes, uncounted millions of people who have said, yes, 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 and never did believe in the sense that the Scripture teaches that true faith really consists of. And the proof that I'm telling you that, or the proof of the truthfulness of my statement is, look at their lifestyles. If all the 100 million or 70 million people, whatever it is in America, that claim to be born-again Christians really did love our Lord Jesus Christ, we would have a sweeping, weeping, powerful, changing revival like the world has never seen. But when we read the statistics that the Christian's lifestyle is not very much different from the rest of the world's lifestyle, we, we say, What's wrong? Is, there, is our faith so weak that it doesn't really change people and make any difference to them? What is the missing ingredient in our churches? I think it's our understanding and our willingness to preach on repentance. If you doubt what I've said is true, that a person can believe and not be saved, Then I take you to the book of James where it tells me that the devil believes and trembles. And trembles. So is it possible for people to believe and not be saved? Yes. What it's talking about is this intellectual ascent. I agree with you. There was a man named Jesus. He died on the cross. Okay, I'll pray the prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and save me, but I don't have any intention of living for you. And we chalk up another decision. A great evangelist of our day, Ray Comfort, said this. He said, I think we ought to change our objective. We ought to preach for repentance and not for decisions. He might be right. We ought to preach for repentance in people's hearts 
rather than decisions because we've got a lot of decisions, but boy, our country doesn't show that this is, in fact, a Christian nation. So in the light of that, no wonder Jesus came along and two times within three verses in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, here's what he said, and except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Two verses later, Luke 13, 5, and except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repentance, the forgotten doctrine. A well-known preacher said, if I had my way, I'd declare a moratorium on the public preaching of the plan of salvation. I call on everyone who has access to the airways or the pulpit to preach on the holiness and justice of God, to preach on repentance, and to preach on the law until sinners will begin to cry out across this country, what must I do to be saved? You see, that's the difference in the country today than when Jonathan Edwards stood and preached in Connecticut, Enfield, Connecticut, and he preached on sinners in the hands of an angry God. And grown men held on to the pillars of the church and cried out for God's mercy upon their lives. When have you ever seen anything like that? The difference and uh, an, an emphasis upon repentance. Paul summarized his entire ministry with these words. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, he said, I preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There you have it, the twins, repentance and faith. Turn from sin to the Savior. Turn from evil to the right as God defines the right, and then the faith works powerfully in our life. You see, because, and the reason I say this is because repentance, number two, is essential because our problem is sin. Now, reason with me. Repentance is so necessary, so required, so essential because the problem we have is sin. Would you turn over to the book of Isaiah with me in your Bible, chapter number 59? And I could put these up there, but I want you to I want you to turn in your Bibles when you come to church, and I want you to read this. I want you to absorb this. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. There's no reason God can't save as many people today as he's done in any other time. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. He can still hear our prayers. But the problem is your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you. Note this, that he will not hear. It's not that he can't. It's that he won't. He won't hear when there's unconfessed sin and people have no intention of turning from it. Let me ask you a question. Why do sinners go to hell? You know what, I bet you if I went through this audience and asked that question, a lot of people would say, well, because they don't believe. That's not why they go to hell. People don't go to hell because they don't believe. Think logically and scripturally with me. Well, why do they go to hell? 
They go to hell because they lie, they cheat, they steal, they curse. Fifteen reasons I have. They lust, they fornicate, they commit adultery, they get drunk, they hate, they're greedy, they're envious, they're covetous, they're gossipy, they blaspheme, and they kill each other. That's why they go to hell. They don't go to hell because they don't believe. The wages of sin is death. Now, believing is the way that they turn that around. That's God's antidote. That's God's medicine, faith in Christ. But nobody goes to hell because they don't believe. They go to hell because they've sinned. It is our sins that separate us from God. Does that make sense to you? Amen? Sure, the Scripture is very clear about that. And so, if that's why people are lost, then it's essential that they repent. And if they don't repent, they have no desire to even be delivered. And so, I preach my heart out, and you witness to people, and you talk to people, and you pray for people. Why do we not see the response? Because there's the lack of repentance. Their hearts are hardened to it. A Puritan preacher 300 years ago wrote, boy, how truthful. What a strange kind of salvation do men desire. They would be saved by Christ, but yet live in a fleshly state. They would have their sins forgiven, not that they might walk with God, but that they might practice their sin against Him without fear of punishment. Oh, if I've ever heard anything that characterizes our culture. Why, what a strange kind of salvation do men desire. Not that they would have their sins forgiven that they might walk with God, but that they might practice their sin against Him with no fear of punishment. And that's where we are. And that's why as I preach these messages on the gospel and on evangelism to you, I want you to understand Every facet of God's wonderful plan of salvation and repentance is the message of the Bible. It is essential because sin is the problem. Now, lastly, repentance prepares the heart to believe the gospel. Repentance prepares the heart to believe the gospel. Now, again, think with me and reason with me. Over in Matthew 13, there's a parable I won't ask you to turn there. You know it. It's the parable of the sower. Behold the parable of the sower. And Jesus tells about this man who went out and he has a big, I picture he has a bag around his neck here, sort of a feed sack cut open, and he's got several pounds of seed in it. And he goes and he tosses out the seed. He walks, and as he walks, he broadcasts the seed. And Jesus said, now, as he walks, it's the same seed but it's different ground, four different kinds of ground. The first, he comes on the, he begins to throw out his seed, and he's on the road. He's on the highway. And so packed down by the feet of men and animals and wagons and so on, the seed lies on the hard ground just like you cast the seed up here on this pulpit. And it just lays there. It never does sprout. There's no fruit ever comes forward. Then the guy walks a little further, and he walks away from the road and gets out into the field, and he continues broadcasting the seed. But 
This time, the ground here is very, very rocky. It has a little thin layer of soil on top of it, but underneath it, there's these rocks and this rocky layer. There are big rocks laying around everywhere. And a little bit of the seed comes up, more than fell on the road, but not a whole lot more because the rocks there, the soil is so poor and the rocks are so thick in there that the sun comes up and and the little plants die. They can't get any depth. He continues walking, throwing out his seed. And he goes to the third kind of ground. And suddenly the ground is very thorny. It's growing up with weeds and all kinds of uh, other matter. He continues throwing out the seed, but not much of the seed comes up because the thorns crowded out. The thorns are a picture of the busyness of life, not even bad things. He continues, and finally he gets into a field. It's been prepared. It's been plowed. The soil is rich and deep and dark. It's damp, it's rain, and the soil holds the proper amount of moisture and has the right mineral mixture in it. And he throws the seed out, and it comes forth a big crop a hundredfold. And then Jesus begins to explain that parable to them, and he tells them in detail what each of those types of soil represent. But here's what I want you to see, that it wasn't the seed, it's the type of soil that brings forth the crop. And the soil represents the hearts of men. And so the same gospel is preached by Junior Hill. And one man hears it last Sunday, and oh, God speaks to his heart. And he comes forward down the aisle, and he receives the Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody else hears it, same message, same atmosphere, same church service, same Holy Spirit, same Bible, same preacher, and it means nothing. What's the difference? Repentance. A willingness to change my mind, my heart, my attitude about everything and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's plowing time right here in the PD right now, South Carolina. It's cold and wet, and yet it's the time to be plowing up these wonderful fields we have across our area. How much crop do you think... How, how, what kind of crops do you think our farmers would get if they just went out in the field and said, you know what, it's cold and wet and it's expensive to plow and gas costs a lot and I don't have a big combine. I'm just going to throw that seed out. Wouldn't be much crop, would there? The plowing, the breaking up of the ground prepares the ground to receive the seed. Follow me. Ladies and gentlemen, repentance and conviction of sin is required to break up the hardness of the heart so that when the gospel is presented, it is received. I use the term conviction. Do you know what conviction means? To see myself as God has been seeing me all along. Conviction, the sinner seeing himself as God has been seeing him all along. And one other thing, I want you to turn with me one more time. It's the book of John, chapter 16, because I want you to see the scriptural reasoning I'm trying to weave through this message. And in John, chapter 16, here is the ingredient that is so critical. Jesus is talking about the comforter up there in verse number 7. 
Nevertheless, said our Lord to the disciples that night he died, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, now notice there's a capital C. We use capitals for words denoting deity. So the comforter there he's speaking about is the Holy Spirit. It's important that I go away. If I go not away, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. And if I depart, I will send him unto you again. And he kept that promise on the day of Pentecost. And when he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will reprove, circle that word, convict, same word. He will convict the world of sin and of their need for righteousness and of judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to prepare the hearts of men through conviction and repentance so that when the seed goes out, whether it's a message from the preacher, or it's the gospel tract you hand to somebody, or it's the witness that you give to them as you attempt to tell them your story or in whatever form, wherever and however, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do it in their hearts, it's going to be a spiritual stillbirth. There's not going to be the life. The ground of the heart has to be prepared and plowed. And then the gospel is presented and the Holy Spirit says, come to the Savior. Oh, you need that. People won't respond to my plea for an Ebola shot because there's no danger. But my friend, when I tell you to come to Jesus, if you don't know him, there is an imminent danger. Please, please, please hear me. Paul's words in Acts chapter 17, don't miss them. God commandeth, not suggests. God commandeth all men at you and me, everywhere, Florence, Middle East, Africa, everywhere, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Have you repented? Has there been that time in your life when you said, oh, man, I have a need. There's a gap between God and me a million miles wide, and it's full of my sins, sins of word, sins of thought, sins of deed. And, oh, I need the Savior. And you change your mind about your sin and yourself and your Savior. You come, and then it's so easy to get saved. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I receive you as my Savior because I'm helpless and hopeless without you. And God, if you will help me, I'll turn from my sins I'll forsake every one of them gladly for the eternal life you promised me in Christ. Amen. Will you bow your head? Thank you for watching our program today. I've spoken to you on the subject of repentance. It's one of the most neglected subjects 
rarely mentioned or preached on in our day. And yet the Bible says, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. To repent simply means to change your mind, as I described in the message. You, you may be thinking, well, Bill, what do you want me to change my mind about? What am I supposed to change my mind about? Well, change your mind about, number one, your sin. You see sin is not something that's sort of semi-bad, but you see sin is something that God hates. You know, the Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. And if you have sin that is unforgiven and unconfessed, that puts you in that wicked category. And so we change our mind about sin. We see sin as a fatal cancer of the soul that will destroy us ultimately in eternal punishment forever and ever. Secondly, repent means to change our mind about ourselves. We come to the point where we see that we cannot save ourselves, that for a human being to try to save himself or herself is like trying to lift yourself up by your own shoestrings. It's impossible that there's no hope of salvation in human righteousness. In fact, the Bible says our best deeds, our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. And he doesn't want anything to do with it. And the third thing repentance means is to change our mind about the Savior, to see Christ as our hope, to see Christ and especially what he did for us on the cross, as him purchasing us, paying off our sin debt, and bestowing his own righteousness and goodness upon us, to make us acceptable in his sight and in the sight of God. And so we're commanded to repent in order to believe. You see, repentance is not salvation. It's the prelude. It prepares the ground of the heart for salvation. And then when we have fully repented, then we turn to Christ. We trust him by faith. We depend upon what he did for us on the cross. And in so doing, we accept his gift of grace and salvation. Now, if you've never done that, you can do that right where you are. You can do that in your home. You can do that in a motel. You can do it wherever you may be watching. You can be watching this in a bar and you could get saved sitting right there. When you transfer your trust from yourself and your own efforts to what Christ did for you on the cross, I hope you'll do that. And when you've done that, please write to me and let me know. I'll send you some helpful literature free of charge. I just want to help you get confident in your faith and see you making progress in your spiritual growth. Please let us know. And I want you to come and visit us here at the Baptist Temple. Everybody that comes here that watches our program says to me something like this. Boy, it's a lot better here than it is on television. So television introduces you to the church. But I want you to come and see us. And we're going to treat you so many ways you're going to like one of them, okay? And so I'll look forward to seeing you soon. And next week here again on Baptist Temple Hour. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Baptist Temple Hour. If you would like a copy of today's program, send your request and payment to the Florence Baptist Temple, 
P.O. Box 12809, Florence, South Carolina, 29504. Be sure to include today's date and the title of today's message, and please allow two to three weeks for delivery. For more information about the Florence Baptist Temple, visit our website at www.fbt.org. We also want to extend to you an invitation to join us in person. Sunday school starts every week at 9 a.m., and the service begins immediately following at 10.30. Once again, the church family at the Florence Baptist Temple wants to thank you for tuning in this week, and we hope to see you next week for another edition of the Baptist Temple Hour.